from Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. This is the Hamilton Place Strategies Macrocast with our friends from Markets Policy Partners. Every Friday, we take a look at the big economic policy and data stories of the week, and we look at what to expect in the week ahead. My name is Tony Fratto, founding partner at HPS. You can check out Hamilton Place Strategies at www.hamiltonps.com. We also tweet at HPS Insight, and I tweet at Tony Fratto. I got to know John Fagan during his time at the Markets Policy Room in the U.S. Treasury Department, and Brendan Walsh when he was a senior analyst at Discovery Capital covering global financial institutions. John and Brendan founded Markets Policy Partners, where they provide independent financial market analysis for public and private sector audiences. You can find them at www.marketspolicy.com. It's Friday, July 5th, and this is an Independence Day weekend and Jobs Day edition of the Macrocast. John Fagan, unfortunately, he's off in the mountains uh, and unreachable today, and so we're giving him the week off, but Brendan Walsh is with us. Matt McDonald, my partner at, uh, here at HPS, a founding partner at HPS, is with us. And among all the other things he does, he's also the creator of the long, long-running HPS Jobs Day fact sheet at MacMcDHPS. You can find him there, and you can find uh, the Jobs Day fact sheet, which he'll be tweeting out this morning as well. Hey, guys, why don't we keep this, um, since it's a holiday weekend, let's keep this relatively short today, and we'll let people get on with uh, uh, with their weekends. But we did have the big um, NFP non-farm payrolls uh, jobs day report today. Matt, you want to give us the headline numbers on what we saw? Yeah, it was a it was a good report. Um, uh, employers added two hundred twenty four thousand jobs in June. Um, the May numbers, which were weak, were revised down just a smidge, but it wasn't it wasn't really material, I would say. And then we saw. The unemployment rate bump up from 3.6 to 3.7, but that's you know that's still kind of an embarrassment of riches. We're talking about a, a 50-year low in mm-hmm. the unemployment rate, um, and we saw it as a uh, um, what we saw be, because of that bump in the unemployment rate what was contributing to that was um, more people coming into the labor force, uh, which is on balance a good thing. So overall, it was a strong. It was a strong headline number, and it was driven by the right mechanics. Um, so it was really good, especially this deep into uh, a recovery. Brendan, what's your take on this? How are markets yeah, reacting Matt, to it? Matt's point on the unemployment rate was really important. Uh, it it, it kind of just rounded up, but it was for a good reason. More people are entering the, the workforce and looking for jobs, not the not the um, the number of unemployed massively increasing. The other thing, I, I a couple little nuggets I, I found. Um, the uh, on the positive side, construction companies hired uh, twenty one thousand, so it's a decent sign for the housing sector, which has kind of been languishing for the the recent time. And then uh, manufacturers also surprisingly added seventeen thousand jobs. But on the negative side, um, retailers keep uh, keep losing jobs, so six thousand. But that, that seems more of more a uh, more Amazon. structural than than secular, though, right? A hundred percent. It's it's yeah. entirely the um, the uh, bricks and mortar going to Amazon. The the other piece, Tony, that I neglected to mention at the front, which is important and everybody's tracking at this point in the cycle, is that um, wages continue to rise. Um, you know, and that's and that is also really good, and we're seeing that continued tightening in the labor market manifest itself through to to wages for workers. 
Yeah, uh, three four years ago, when when wages were kind of languishing at the, in the low two percent uh, on an annual basis, the Fed you know set basically a three percent target. Said you know if we if we could get there, it would be pretty good. And now we're there, and now we're talking about cutting. It's it's interesting. Uh, it is a weird. Uh, I definitely want to yeah, I definitely want to get into to cutting. Yeah, wages were. Uh, I mean, definitely sir, but again above the uh, above three. They were three point one percent in this report uh, year over year. Market expected three point two, but you know, again, like we're we're uh, these are a little bit volatile, and we're in the ranges. Um, yeah, so so talk about cuts. I mean, you know, Brendan, the last couple of weeks, you know, we were talking about uh, market expectations for uh, for rate cuts, the July cut, hundred percent priced in, future cuts, pretty high priced in, and you know, I tweeted out this morning after the numbers came out that you know that. You know, Jay Powell's great again. Um, you know, the numbers, the, the data was robust, and uh, and I asked people to make the case for uh, in this environment, I'll make the case for a rate cut. What's it rate case for a rate cut? Now, I, I still think we're looking at a July rate cut, but it gets harder to make the case, doesn't it? Yeah. So today, the the expectations changed moderately. So we went from a hundred percent in July to about ninety percent. But the big one is uh, for a fifty basis point cut in the July meeting. We went from about 25% odds to now down to 10, which I think that's logical. Um, I suppose if you're going to make the case for the cut, you focus on two things. One is the fact that inflation is still low. We're at 1.6% core on the PCE. Um, and then the other one is simply the market, where we have a lot of the, the yield curves inverted. Uh, the market has really priced it. And if you don't do it, you're, you risk a, you know, a market sell-off. Well, I, I think that's that's absolutely the and, and, and that's absolutely the case. And you and you wonder. I mean, if you wonder if uh, I mean, is that a, is that a reason to not make the cut or or to make the cut rather? Well, we did QE, and the whole point of QE is to make markets go up. So you kind of made your bed. <laughs> so I suppose I suppose you have to pay attention to the markets now. If I guess if it seems the like that's the getting, devil you made. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that's getting far away from the uh, you know it's away from the Fed's mandate. I mean, I, I mean, you know, we could we could make the case that. They haven't made, uh, you know, they're not hitting their inflation target. And heard, you know, a lot of people saying, "Well, that's a that's the case." When I asked the question, "That's the case," is they're still below their inflation target, but and we, maybe we should do a whole separate show on whether it makes sense to be so focused on uh, how they've been missing the inflation target. But well, I read a report uh, from he was a former Fed governor and you know Fed watcher and. In it, he he mentioned why why we could get a cut in um, this summertime, and one of the top three or four reasons was a market sell-off. Where when I knew him five six years ago, that would have been utter sacrilege. You know, the, the the Fed doesn't pay attention to the markets, but we've we've gotten to that point where it's just kind of accepted that they do pay attention to the markets. You know, one thing that uh, that's interesting in the context of both the Fed and then the jobs report, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna um, hat tip. Ernie Tedeschi for his analysis on this, but is the degree to which demography is derived is applying um, downward pressure on rates, at least the the ten year, yep. and, and it is yeah, and it's it's super interesting to look at the jobs report through that lens as well because you know yes a a, a two hundred thousand plus uh, jobs number is a great headline number. But on some respect is that the bigger challenge that we face in the economy is the aging of the workforce. And 
and what we saw also is that the the labor force participation rate holding steady that is a big deal and something that is going to be the challenge for you know the next decade to come so it's interesting to see where um you think about it the impact of that those changes on the fed side and how they're thinking about uh rates and then also on the job market side and how um you know, especially from a uh, fiscal policy side, how do you incentivize people to stay in the labor force? And those are those are two. That's a big change in how we think about the economy and what we're looking at in the coming years. And it's something that both the uh, Fed side and then the policymaker side have to be thinking about. Yeah, I saw a great love- counterplot um, <clears throat> two days ago, and it was simply um, on the y-axis. Uh, your rate of inflation on the x-axis that's the 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 number of elderly you have in the in the economy yeah. and it's it's a i mean you don't have to be a genius to look at it old yeah. old economies have very low inflation well and here's the interesting thing about that is that i actually i agree with you i would say that um that you don't have to be a genius to understand that and yet at the same time it is a very different mental model than we have used for decades because yeah. and i don't really, know what you do about it well yeah and and here's the thing is that look over a period of i think back to when you know my parents were uh psyched about a 12% interest rate on their mortgage in the 80s <laughs> when yeah. when the baby boomers were in their prime purchasing years and the demand for um borrowing was comparatively high and you know, you could do worse than understand um, some of these rate cycles through that lens of the baby boomer impact on the economy. And we just haven't had within the kind of generational memory, we just haven't really had to confront this. And, you know, looking at what Japan is doing in, in advance of us is, is will be instructive to thinking about both policy and economics in the years to come. Yeah, we have thirteen billion. Japan, yeah, we have thirteen oh, billion in negative yielding assets right now. And and Tony, going back to our talk the other day about Italy, Italy is able to to borrow on the, the short end in negative territory. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, <laughs> and, and and that's Italy, right? And then uh, and of course Germany is um, you know paying you quite considerably to hold to hold their their money. So. Look, a longer question on this. I mean, it's a bit, I mean, this would be a great topic for another show, is um, because there is a, a lot to dive into in it. Though, is whether anything ought to really be done about. It. That's why that was, mm. you know, sort of getting my point about, um, you know, whether we need to be such a slave to. Like, I understand the logic of the inflation target. I'm pro inflation targeting, uh, but there is a sort of slavery to it, and uh, thinking about it as a as a as a as a goal in and of itself. But if the economy is otherwise doing well and it's and is being impacted by demographic changes, like if you go to Japan, um, it doesn't look or feel like an economy that has that's had slow growth for two decades. It looks like a highly developed, um, you know, Western, yep. you know, materialistic economy. It doesn't look like it, like if you lived there that you would feel like things aren't great, you know. And so, uh, and it's because we have to readjust our thinking as economies do become more uh, more mature, not just as they become mature economies, older demographics, but also uh, the stock of wealth in the economy, I think, has different dynamics. It's, you know, if you've got a lot of Western European countries that are very well, I was just in Austria, you know, and some other Western European countries last uh, last couple of weeks, and they're wealthy and 
you know, see, the, the, the growth hasn't been U.S., even U.S. rates of growth. You don't feel like you're in a country that is um, having uh, economic hardship. I, that's a great point, Tony. And I would say one thing that I would add to that is that, look, you know, we've we've had a lot of discussion in policy circles in the U.S. over the past, you know, I don't know, decade about are we going to get back to 3% growth? And the reality is that people experience the economy on a per capita basis. They don't experience the economy right. on a how much is it growing. So, you know, on some level, like that's the headline number that people got used to. But to your point, it's a, does it matter? It's not that's not clear. Yeah. So there have been some questions uh, about the, you know, uh, uh, the, and, and I would love to look back into it into the BLS report of people unemployed for or taking part time jobs for economic reasons, which has steadily declined during the um, during the recovery, but hasn't gotten you know quite down to pre-crisis levels, but was, but was pretty close. But there, it, it, you know, um, people have a different view. You know, they have this view that there are a lot of people taking second jobs to make ends meet, but it's not showing up in the data at all. It's actually showing the opposite. Yeah, that kind of came out during the debates, the Democratic debates, um, where it came up that you know there's X amount of people working in uh, second and third jobs, but when you actually look at the data, it's uh, it's actually lower than it was under the Obama administration. Yeah, I think I think was that Bernie Sanders who said that. I didn't watch the debate. I think I just saw a, a tweet about it later. Yeah, yeah. All right, guys, why don't we take a break here and then uh, then we come back. Uh, why don't we take a couple of minutes just talking about changes at the ECB and where we think. Um, uh, with you know how things are going to change in Europe, uh, we we'll take a couple minutes on that. Look at and then look at data uh, that we have to look forward to next week, and then we'll call it a weekend. Uh, this is the uh, HPS Macrocast, and we'll be right back. All right, we're back with the HPS Macrocast. We have Brendan Walsh from uh, Marcus Policy Partners, uh, Matt McDonald, my partner here at HPS. Um, it was a big announcement, a surprise announcement uh, we saw uh, uh, just the other day of uh, IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde, a former finance minister uh, for France. Uh, um, she's going to be the next um, head of the uh, European Central Bank, the ECB, replacing uh, whatever it takes, Mario Draghi. Um, that was kind of big <laughs> news. And, what, 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 you know, Brendan, how are you? Um, uh, what, do, what do you expect that's going to mean for the ECB? The market certainly took it positively that uh, she basically will continue uh, the, the path that uh, Draghi has started and maybe even be a little more dovish. That's what the market's kind of of the view. Yeah, I mean, she hasn't given any indications on this. I mean, it's just that uh, I mean, no, I think people, other people are just <laughs> are guessing that uh, that she's a she's a, a, a dove. I don't know that I, I know Christine Lagarde a little bit um, and. I don't know that I would make those presumptions um, about her. I think she's uh, she's a pretty clear-headed person. I think she's going to be someone who's very uh, data-dependent and isn't yeah. going to go in with sort of preconceived views. And it could be just the expectations that it was going to be a German. So the fact <laughs> That's that true. It's, it's a relief a rally. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say one thing that uh, I think is interesting about the Lagarde appointment is that she has more of a history as a um, politician, public figure, someone who is used to communicating to, you know, broad audiences. And I think that that is a, I'm not sure that that's what people think of first when they think of central bank leadership, but it is super important. And, and just from a perspective of someone who is 
not uh, who is used to that and understands how to navigate the that public scrutiny. I think that that would have a you know whether whether she ends up being more hawkish or more dovish. I think that there's an element of certainty into being able to for into her being able to express what she's thinking that that could be helpful as for market watchers that they would welcome. I think that's absolutely uh, spot on. It's a good, just a great, good, great, great point. Um, that I mean, it presents both both opportunities for her as a communicator at ECB and um, and maybe advantages that Mario Draghi and his predecessors didn't have, and also some risk too, right? I mean that um, yeah. uh, that, that that's seen as uh, uh, political, but she's a she's a really impressive woman and just really smart talented and but but we are going to have the two most important central banks now led not by uh, yeah. economists but by lawyers uh, which is which is interesting there's no math on the lsat <laughs> <laughs> that's true someone who once took the lsat i can confirm that <laughs> but it is a great point because the ecb press conference is much more market moving than the actual statement. Um, you know, usually you kind of know what's coming. So it's those nuances that uh, that the head of the ECB provides that really, really what the market focuses on. Yeah. Well, we saw this with with not not too um, long ago with Jay Powell is that, yes. you know, finding your sea legs in terms of how what you mean to say and what people hear is it's an art and uh, it's, you know, I think it's true broadly, Tony, we see this in our work. I think it's true broadly at kind of the CEO and C-suite level is that you're not, you know, you're, you're not really under scrutiny until you get into that big chair and then it's a different game and some people are prepared for it and some are not. And I think that's true with central banks too. And I think that, you know, there are people who learn on the job and I don't think that Lagarde is going to be learning that particular skill on the job. Not that she won't have challenges to face, but it's, I think it's a comfort to markets that she's used to that scrutiny on, uh, on a big stage. Yeah, I totally agree. I remember watching uh, Ben Bernanke's first uh, hearing uh, or testimony, and he was very much a, a deer in the headlights, but he's someone that definitely grew into the job. And by the end, he knew exactly what he was doing and, and was able to play the market as he wanted. Yeah, and I would just say no, no, none of these, none of the people I can think of at either. I mean, maybe going back to Greenspan. Greenspan did some, you know, some public commentating uh, before he became Fed chair, but not not really that much. I mean, it's hard to find either at the ECB or the Fed someone who has spoken publicly about sensitive economic issues uh, than Christine Lagarde. So she's, you know, I mean, so maybe yeah. she 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 will she'll have. You know, uh, maybe make fewer uh, mistakes, but it is a unique challenge to speak about your expectations about the economy and what your intentions are as a policymaker, and um, and so you know, mistakes do happen. Uh, you do, you know, you do have to learn. Uh, I think even the best the best communicators have to um, have to learn on the job a little bit. And so we'll probably see some of that, but, but she's, she's pretty, she, from a communication standpoint, I don't think anyone has ever been better prepared for it. Right. Um, and so we'll, we'll see. And she's been through some of the challenges through, you know, both at the state level and the international financial institution level during financial crises as well. So if we see one of those again, um, it's good to have someone with some experience at the helm. Brendan, do we have a, what are we looking for uh, next week? I haven't even looked at 
what data we have. Uh, yeah, that's on. actually a good transition because we have a little data, but next next week's really going to be dominated by Fed uh, testimony. So we get the the jolts data on Tuesday, and then the big one on Thursday on the data front is we get the CPI for June, and then on the Friday the PPI. Uh, but the the real big. Uh, uh, up in Canada, the, the Bank of Canada has a rate decision. And while they're not expecting a cut, there's always a chance for one. Uh, but Jay Powell on Wednesday goes before the House uh, Financial Services Committee for the Humphrey Hawkins testimony. So in this, you usually try to go up there and say as little as possible and answer questions that are more directed towards you know someone's district than mo uh, monetary policy. But with the, the market expecting a, a cut in July and maybe a couple more throughout the year, um, Jay's going to have, in his, his uh, stated testimony, he's going to have to probably address it. So the market will be close, close attention to this one. And then on the same day, we get the FOMC uh, meeting minutes from the June meeting. Well, we'll have a lot of that to talk about next week then. Um, yeah. And then yeah. the next day, he goes before the Senate on Thursday. Right, for a reprise. Yes. Okay, Matt McDonald, Brendan Walsh. Have a wonderful rest of the uh, uh, July Fourth holiday weekend. Thanks for um, thanks for making time today on the Macro Policy Podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week. See you Friday. Thanks for listening to the HPS Macrocast, produced by Hamilton Place Strategies in association with Markets Policy Partners. For more from Hamilton Place Strategies, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insight. For more from Markets Policy Partners please visit marketspolicy.com.